This is the Room Now podcast, and you're listening to highlights from the ACR 2020 virtual meeting. Our faculty reporters have been doing videos and recordings so that you can stay up to date. Hope you enjoy these and our panel discussions. Hi, this is Dr. Eric Dine coming to you from Baltimore, Maryland for Room Now. We just completed day one of ACR 2020 Convergence. And I'm here to talk about abstract 0483 from the afternoon oral abstract presentations. Uh, this study by Dr. Bykirk at HSS looked at patients' CDI scores. How well do physicians and patients predict swollen and tender joints? And can you calculate a patient CDI to match a physician CDI? This is obviously incredibly relevant right now as we are talking about providing telemedicine, providing remote, remote care, not being able to see our patients in the office as much as we'd like. So they reported from two cohorts of early rheumatoid arthritis, the CATCH study, which is a Canadian cohort study, and the CATCH US, the American cohort study. And in both of them, they followed 28 joint counts. And for this study, they looked at patient assessment of swollen and tender joints, as well as MD physician assessments of swollen and tender joints. From that, they calculated a CDI score to follow disease activity levels. What they found was a fair bit of agreement, pretty high amount that in the CATCH cohort, the MDs had a score of 26 patients were on average 27. In the CATCH US, MDs 15.3, uh, patients 15.1, so quite close on those means. And particularly at low levels of disease activity, the numbers seemed to correlate extremely well. They diverged as it got higher when patients were more active. Um, there, there was some more disagreement and swollen joints were a little bit easier to assess than tender joints. We know that telemedicine is part of clinical medicine. If that wasn't clear prior to COVID, it's certainly part of our toolbox now, and I think it's going to be with us for some time and indefinitely. How do we use this finding into our clinical medicine? I think it tells us that we should listen to our patients. We should ask them how they feel their disease activity is particularly those patients that are doing well. If they say that they're doing well and don't have any disease activity, or if they say that they have one or two joints that are active, those patients tend to be pretty well reliable with what the physician would then assess. Patients that have higher disease activity, that's a pretty good indication for me that that's a patient that I would wanna see in the office, either because their disease is active and they need the closer follow-up, or that there's some divergence with physicians more commonly in those patients with perhaps just very high scores that it's hard to keep track of the swollen and tender joints, or um, there's some different in expectation or understanding of their disease activity. How generalizable is it? Uh, this is a cohort of early rheumatoid arthritis patients. Uh, so um, you can think about if those patients that have had long-standing RA for decades and decades, would they re report similarly? 
uh, when they tell you that they're having a flare or that their symptoms are under control. These are also patients that were in a pretty close uh, cohort study. So they have seen physician visits in the past and they may have uh, a little bit more understanding of what goes into the joint analysis, although they were not expressly taught how to do it in the office. Um, but my takeaway would be when you see the patients in the office, you would empower them to keep track of their own symptoms, show them what swollen and tender joints are present and talk to them, listen to your patient, uh, see what they say, uh, correlate it with a video examination if not able to do an in-person examination and use their, use their history, use their reports to help get them the care that they need. When things seem to be active, when things uh, are not going well, those are patients that you would then wanna see in the office and keep close eyes and talk to them about what disease activity looks like. I thought that was a great study by Dr. Bykirk and um, uh, phenomenal information for me to use moving forward. This is Dr. Dyan reporting for Room Now. I look forward to day two of ACR convergence. Hi, David Liu here again for RoomNow.com from ACI 2020. Another abstract from the, one of the plenary sessions about Kawasaki disease. And we've always thought that with the ready availability of IV, IVIG in the modern era, that we know it reduces coronary artery aneurysm. And I guess the implication has always been that the long-term cardiovascular risks um, might improve as well. And that, that's really what we're worried about with Kawasaki disease in the long-term. Um, what does it mean for these young patients, what does it mean for their long-term prognosis and their cardiac prognosis? So some really interesting data um, from sick kids in, in, in Ontario, um, Canada, uh, looking at some of, some of these data, looking for uh, um, data from Ontario province and the associations, they were able to really cohort that data as a population-based co population cohort study and follow these patients through for really quite a long time, up to 24 years um, in this modern, uh, modern IVIG era. And they looked at uh, composite, cardio composite cardiovascular events as well as um, and, and considering whether coronary uh, artery um, aneurysms might have an effect or not. And what they saw was that while the risk was high in that first initial period um, after um, the initial episode, the risk kept on going on right past 10 years uh, for cardiac events, which was somewhat surprising to me. And then um, in addition to that, we could see that that was, uh, occurred in patients obviously with um, coronary artery aneurysms, but also patients who didn't have coronary artery aneurysms did also seem to have that same risk. I think that raises all sorts of questions about the morbidity that's associated uh, with, uh, with this disease. There's a lot that we, can, we still need to try and address to help uh, these patients with their long-term comorbidities. For this and much more about ACI 2020, head along to roomnow.com. Hello everyone, I'm Olga Petrina from New York and I'm recording today some updates from the virtual ACR meeting. I would like to share some uh, updates about the use of case in patients with severe refractory gout 
There are several abstracts that talk about how to better or safer use epiglottic case. And I would like to start with the abstract 0065, which talks about uh, the increase uh, of use of epiglottic case in combination with immunomodulatory therapy uh, to improve the outcomes. So in this particular study, authors report that while the use of immunomodulators along with epiglottic case was extremely low in the period of time between 2015 and 2018, the average use during that time was between 1.2 and 4%. It, it exploded in 2019 up to 15% of uh, in, uh, use in combination with immunomodulators. I think it partially because we, we are coming across more and more data on uh, safety of use of such combined treatments. And there are some clinical trial results uh, pertaining to use of metotrexate, azathioprine, or salsept along with pagloti case. So based on that data, it seems that the uh, implementation of immunomodulatory therapy into pagloti case infusion schedule becomes more popular overall amongst rheumatologists. Uh, and speaking about some background, why, uh, why such combination is effective and safe, uh, the abstract 0683 speaks about pharmacokinetics of concomitant use of pegloidic case with metotrexate. So in this abstract, uh, authors outline um, the results of the concomitant use of metotrexate and pegloidic case in 11 patients with uh, severe refractory gout. And in these patients, the trough and uh, Cmax was measured um, with and without uh, use of metotrexate. So in this particular study, they showed that uh, patients who received metotrexate along with pegloidic case tend to have significantly lower uh, levels of trough below quantitative limit. In this study, 3.6 patients on metotrexate, I'm sorry, only 36% patients on metotrexate and 77% uh, of the patients without it experienced the trough levels below the quantitative limit. And then also um, maximum concentration of pegloticase seemed to be higher at two uh, microgram per milliliter in patients who used it with metotrexate as opposed to use without. So the study points to the fact that metotrexate probably prevents developing anti-drug antibodies and it improves the retention of the medication and the concentrations, although it did, did not have any effect on um, clinical response to treatment uh, in those patients who received combined therapy. And speaking of the results of the uh, of the effectiveness of this combined therapy, the abstract 0677, which is a result of the open label mirror trial, which is a, uh, initially was staged as a six month trial, but later um, extended, to, extended to 52 weeks, which is 12 months. In this trial, uh, patients received uh, metotrexate uh, starting 30 days prior to initiations of glodicate infusions. And then out to 14 patients enrolled, 11 were able to complete the trial at six months. 
and then uh, three patients uh, dropped out of the trial for reasons unrelated to side effects. And interestingly enough, patients who were responders in the trial were actually able to successfully continue treatment up to 12 months with a good retention of serum uric acid below one. And in this trial, it showed that when uh, methotrexate was added to case, response rates improved significantly uh, in patients and more patients were able to retain efficacy of the medication. Uh, when it comes to side effects, the uh, frequency of flares was significant in the first 12 weeks of trial. So 92.9 patients experienced the flare of gout in the treatment group, which is, uh, in my opinion, is expected uh, when you start effective uh, uric acid lowering therapy. And then uh, over time, at weeks 36 and on, the frequency of flares dropped to only 25%. Also, um, there's one uh, severe side effect, which was sepsis in a in this trial, and uh, the remainder, remainder of the side effects were diarrhea, upper respiratory infections, arthralgia, and uh, nasopharyngitis. Uh, no serious events, diverse events were, were recorded. So overall, it says that the use of methotrexate in combination with pagliadicase seems to be effective and safe uh, way to, to, to administer the medication. And it is worth considering patients with uh, severe gout who are in need of this um, important and sometimes scary infusion. Um, uh, they definitely benefit from it. I hope you enjoyed uh, the ECR so far, and I'll keep you updated with more information going forward. For now, I wish you all a good day, and I'll see you soon on Room Now again. Hello, I'm Anthony Chan. I'm consultant rheumatologist from Reading in the United Kingdom. And I'm reporting here from ACR20. One of the uh, interesting areas that have been uh, looked at in uh, the ACR and in terms of the sessions, presentations, and posters is the area of patient reported outcomes or pros. Now, many of you may be using pros in your clinic. Often it's used for, as a research tool but what we have seen in the presentations and posters is the use of pros in terms of clinical practice, in terms of informing our treatment choices, in terms of assessing our treatment outcomes. Uh, there are a few posters, but I wanted to highlight to you poster 169, which you looked at the use of pros, uh, patient reported outcomes in psoriatic arthritis. Now we have uh, clinical scores that we use in our clinic to measure objectively uh, the patient's disease activity in psoriatic arthritis, uh, such as the uh, minimal disease activity or low disease activity scores. We also have the, DAP, we also have the DAPSA score. Uh, we also have the CDI score. And so we have a few of these scores that we use. Now, if what we have learned from the, the COVID-19 pandemic is that often we found it difficult to meet our patients in clinic because uh, we due to the isolation or the shielding or the social distancing that we had, we had to do a lot of our clinics virtually. Now, when we do our clinics virtually, one of the problems that we face is that we can't physically examine our patients in terms of assessing the number of tender and swollen joints. So this study, I think, is quite useful and practical as well because they use uh, patient report and outcomes to see whether they correlated with the clinical scores that we would have done in clinic. And they use two scores. Firstly, the um, score called PSA12, and the other score is called the RAPID3. 
Now they use these two scores and they then try to correlate to see how well they, they perform against the clinical scores that be the ones that we use in our clinics, such as the MDA, LDA, CDI, and CDAPS score. And what they found, there was a very strong correlation between the use of the patient-reported outcome scores and the clinical scores that we'd have used in clinic. So the RAPID-3 and the uh, PSAID-12 correlated very well with the LDA, CDI, and CDAPS score. The RAPID-3 was very uh, uh, sensitive and effective in terms of um, detecting uh, near remission scores in patients. So in patients who did very well in terms of their treatment, uh, when they did this, this the rapid tree, that correlated really well with the near remission scores. And the PSAID 12 score also did well and had a sort of wider range uh, of uh, sensitivity and picking up a more global view of the patient's condition, again, correlating with the moderate scores on the LDA, CDAPSA, and CDI scores. So I think this, uh, this whole area of PROSA is, is one that we should be thinking about how we can implement it in our clinic. Now you might be using paper scores or electronic scores, and a lot of these scores can actually be completed at home prior to the patients attending your clinic. And you could, you could then uh, spend more time in clinic uh, doing the physical examination, but having a whole rich uh, data about their, their function and their performance at home uh, in terms of uh, their condition like psoriatic arthritis and how that correlates to their physical examination not only in the time of COVID, but I think beyond COVID, when things uh, hopefully start to return to normal, we should be considering how we can use uh, PROs in our clinical practice to guide our treatment decisions and to guide our treatment outcomes. I'm Anthony Chan. Thank you for listening. I'm reporting from ACR20. Thank you very much. This is Dr. Catherine Dow reporting for Room Now. So I'm at the ACR 2020 Convergence Virtual Meeting. And I wanted to share with you um, an abstract that I thought was very fascinating because this might actually change your practice. This is abstract number 540. And this is a study by the Mayo Clinic. And they wanted to look for what is the incidence, not the prevalence, but the incidence of hydroxychloroquine associated retinopathy with a five milligram per kilogram per day dose. Now, if you remember in the past ACR, we had a great debate where Michelle Petrie was trying to argue for the fact that we really shouldn't be lowering our dose, right? Um, but the American Academy of Ophthalmology really wanted us to try to stay low just to prevent retinopathy. So what this study did was they took 540 patients who were taking hydroxychloroquine, mostly for rheumatoid arthritis or lupus. The average dose of these patients were 372 milligrams a day, where it's estimated to be approximately 4.8 milligram per kilogram per day. And these patients on average had been on the medicine for about 9.6 years. And so they explored them at five years, there was zero cases of retinopathy. And then at 10 years, there was a 2.5% rate. Now, if you remember, the American Academy of Ophthalmology in previous traditional studies had said that at the 6.5 milligram per kilogram dose, the one that Dr. Petrie had touted, it yielded at five years a 1% risk of retinopathy and a 10-year risk of 2% retinopathy. So here we have it, five milligrams per kilograms, 0% risk, but the 6.5 milligram per kilogram had a 1% risk. But at 10 years, it's like 
there's really no difference between the two. So what do you think you're going to do? Um, for me, for sure, I think I'm just going to keep my lupus patients at 6.5 milligrams per kilograms per day because this drug has been shown to decrease the risk of death, improve renal response, decrease thrombosis, improve pregnancy outcomes. I just really think that this is such a good drug and we need to be using our tools effectively. This is Dr. Katherine Dow. Continue to follow me on Twitter at KDow2011. Hi, I'm Dr. Janet Pope here at Room Now at the ACR 2020 virtual meeting or convergence meeting. There's a lot going on. There's been a lot of excitement on the posters and on the talks. What I'd like to talk about today is whether or not we think that methotrexate increases skin cancer in our patients, such as in rheumatoid arthritis, and also whether we should do skin exams. So on abstract 1001, there's a nice study looking at, from a great big billing database, Medicare, looking at people receiving methotrexate or hydroxychloroquine. And what they did was they looked at the incidence of both non-melanoma skin cancer or NMSC or melanoma skin cancers. And reassuringly with a very large N, they found no difference in the rate of skin cancers. And that was looking overall, looking at the two subsets, looking also for those who got eye examinations because of course, more eye exams would be scheduled for hydroxychloroquine and things like melanoma and the retina are very rare, but something that could be picked up. So the bottom line, there was no difference. So what is my take home? There have been people suggesting that all our patients on biologicals and maybe also CSD marts such as methotrexate should have skin exams. Number one, I'm not against a skin exam. I think it's important in high-risk patients. They're fair, they had lots of sunburns, they've already had a skin cancer. But number two, I don't think we need to spend the dermatologist time for every one of my RA patients as a, for instance, on either a BDMARD or on uh, an advanced therapy or even on methotrexate. I think skin cancer is very common. Most patients see that it's there. And when we examine our patients, we should look. So number one, methotrexate, at least in this study, doesn't increase skin cancers. Number two, I don't think a skin exam annually in every patient is needed. Thank you. Please follow us at Room Now. And my Twitter handle is at Janet Burdope. Thank you.